Well, hello and welcome to the Jazz Focus. My name is John Clark and thank you for joining us again. We are here at our home on Anchor.fm. You're probably listening to us on Spotify or Apple or one of those other fine platforms. If you'd like to donate to the Jazz Focus or become one of our sponsors, we're always looking for members of the family. Take a look at uh, the button that's probably on your browser for either a one-time sponsorship or a sustaining membership once a month. We would love to have you as part of the family. So today, we're going to be listening to the music of a blues singer, a blues queen, so-called. One of the great uh, traveling uh, blues performers of the 1920s. This is usually called classic blues, although that term is starting to fall into disfavor somewhat. Uh, We think of the great singers like Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey. Uh, We've done a show on Clara Smith as well. There were plenty of other singers uh, who were uh, traveling around the the, the vaudeville circuit in the 1920s who had been active on the tent show and minstrel circuit in the decade prior to that. These were African-American women who, uh, for the most part, were leading their own shows. They were uh, in a position of extreme responsibility, musical and professional, and uh, really uh, an important moment in music history, American music history, African-American music history, and women's music history as well. So the subject of today's dissertation is Ida Cox. Ida Cox was born Ida Prather uh, at some point around about 1890 in Toccoa, Georgia. Not sure exactly when. She uh, gave some different dates during her life. We think, uh, reflecting back, looking at census records and so forth, it was probably about 1889 or so. Uh, She grew up in the shadow of a plantation that was owned by the Prather family, the white family that, uh, I guess, sired that uh, African-American strain of, of their family, and uh, in her later years, she did an interview where she basically said it was a kind of an idyllic existence when she was growing up, rural and, and, and happy and so forth. Not sure how uh, much of that was viewed through rose-colored glasses, but uh, she did apparently come up in a loving family. She ended up uh, being very close to her family. She had a sister uh, and then a daughter who was born in about 1907, six or seven, apparently out of wedlock. This must have been about the time Ida was 17, 16, 17 years old, and it might have precipitated her leaving home uh, as an entertainer. Uh, many years later, she went back and lived with that daughter, Helen, in Knoxville, Tennessee, after uh, she had some ill health and spent most of the last 20 years of her life there. And in fact, Knoxville appears to have been her base of operations, even when she was doing her extensive touring in the 1920s and 30s. So sometime around about 1907, 1908, uh, Ida Cox left home. She wasn't known as Ida Cox at the time, but she very soon married a cornet player named Adler Cox, who was uh, touring in the Florida Cotton Blossoms or one of the other minstrel shows that Ida became a uh, chorus uh, member in, and she started doing solos as well. She was a gifted comedian and uh, singer, dancer, what have you. So she uh, never lacked for work in these shows. And she and Adler were married for a while during the mid-1910s. Don't know whatever happened to him. Some people said that they thought he died during World War I, but uh, have no proof of that either way. Uh, at some point, they were no longer together, and Ida uh, went out on her own. She started doing other tent shows, minstrel shows, and even some vaudeville appearances as well. By the early 1920s, she was appearing strictly on vaudeville theaters. She uh, 
was not known as a singer of the vocal quality of Bessie Smith or Ma Rainey, who had that deep, rich quality to their voices. Uh, she had a more penetrating style, but excellent diction, which made her a good uh, match for the recording industry, which, uh, of course, was starting up in the 1920s as far as African-American uh, singers were concerned. Uh, Clark Terry, the great trumpeter from St. Louis, uh, in his autobiography, wrote that he toured with Ida Cox's show for about six months in 1939 and 1940, when he was just a teenager. And he said uh, that at that point, she had a voice that could knock a fly off the wall in the back of the theater. So she knew how to project quite well. And that was a big part of her appeal, I think, on stage. She also uh, could communicate very well with her songs. And Unlike really any of the classic blues singers other than Ma Rainey, she was responsible for writing a lot of her repertoire. She was quite a, a poet, uh, and in some cases a composer as well. She took some liberties with the blues form and a lot of tunes, and uh, she uh, created some very compelling uh, lyrical statements on the blues. Some probably used uh, imagery and, and wording that had been around for a long time, but uh, the way she put it together, her songs uh, all had a kind of an integrity, that they, they made sense listening to the successive blues choruses and so forth. They were an integrated whole, which was not the case with a lot of other blues singers. So as I said, by the early 1920s, she was being looked at by the recording industry, and she was hired by Paramount in um, the spring of 1923, not too long after uh, Bessie Smith had started making her recordings for Columbia in New York. I'd have made most of hers in Chicago. That was where, or closer to her base of operations. And for much of her career, early career, she was accompanied by Lovey Austin on piano. She is going to be the subject of a podcast coming up. She was quite a remarkable woman. She was a pianist who was the music director at the Monogram Theater in Chicago. That was one of the big uh, stops for the TOBA, the Theater Owners Booking Association circuit of black vaudeville performers. And she was responsible for running the music for all of the acts that came through. And so she came to know a lot of the blues singers and entertainers, and they trusted her. She was a very good musician. She could uh, write songs down and, and get them copyrighted. Uh, she was working extensively for Paramount Records at the time doing that. She wrote a lot of tunes on her own, and she had a, a a nice little band of musicians that she called on. It wasn't a regular band, but uh, it, it uh, backed up a lot of blues singers. Lovey Austin and her Blues Serenaders, which featured at different times Johnny Dodds on clarinet, Jimmy O'Brien uh, was her first clarinet player, Tommy Ladnier was her trumpet player, and they can be heard on many blues recordings from Chicago from the 1920s, and we're going to hear them in just a few minutes. We're going to start out, though, with uh, some recordings that Ida Cox made during, I would call it, her first renaissance. Uh, she had uh, finished her initial recording career in 1929. Most of the blues singers were petering out about then. The style was getting a little bit stale, and, uh, of course, the Depression intervened as well. But she continued touring. Uh, her husband uh, and accompanist at the time, Jesse Crump, a piano player, and she put together a minstrel show called Raisin Cane, a blackface minstrel show, tension show, what have you, that toured uh, throughout the South during the 1930s. And that was the show that Clark Terry toured with. It was called something different at the time. I think it was called the Midnight Ramble, or Midnight Ramblers, actually. And uh, they would do outside tent shows and so forth during the good weather, and then they would go into the theaters during the colder months. And Terry, uh, who was with them from, I think, November of 1939 up through about May of 1940, just remembered playing theaters, and that certainly makes sense because that was when they were doing the theatrical circuit. He probably left right before they went back under canvas, as it were. 
So at this point in the late 30s, she was discovered, as so many were, by John Hammond. John Hammond was the white jazz entrepreneur who was Benny Goodman's brother-in-law at the time, and he was responsible for uh, the initial recordings of Count Basie's band, a little bit later for Aretha Franklin, Bob Dylan, um, the last recordings of Bessie Smith, uh, some of the first of Billie Holiday. He was a busy fellow. And when he found Ida Cox uh, still touring and uh, singing quite well, he brought her to New York and made a few recording sessions with her in the fall of 1939. After that, he brought her back on Christmas Eve of 1939 to sing in his second annual, and I think last annual, uh, Spirituals to Swing concert, which celebrated the contributions of African Americans to American music. We're going to be hearing one tune from that concert, but before we do, we're going to hear two tunes uh, from the Vocalion sessions that Ida Cox uh, recorded in 1939. We're going to hear One Hour Mama, which she composed, and the Death Letter Blues, which she composed along with her husband, Jesse Crump. And that was a big hit for her in the 1920s. She recorded that several times during her career. And this is done by Ida Cox and her all-star band, which features Hot Lips Page on trumpet, J.C. Higginbottom on trombone, Edmund Hall on clarinet, James P. Johnson on piano, Charlie Christian playing acoustic guitar, Artie Bernstein on bass, and Lionel Hampton on drums. And uh, Christian Bernstein and Hampton were all members of the Benny Goodman band at the time. You can hear some more of the recordings from this session and its session mate uh, uh, where Fletcher Henderson and replaced Fletch, uh, James P. Johnson on piano on an earlier podcast we've done called Blues in the 30s. So take a listen to that, as well as another session she did later on in 1940. So after that, we're going to hear from the stage of Carnegie Hall on December 24th of 1939, Ida Cox singing with some members of the Count Basie Band who were appearing on that same concert, Chad Collins on trumpet, Dickie Wells on trombone, Buddy Tate on tenor sax, along with James P. Johnson again on piano, Walter Page on bass, and Joe Jones on drums. And we're going to hear Low Down Dirty Shame. Um, I believe that was an Ida Cox composition as well. She did another tune at that same um, concert called The Four Day Creep, and we're going to hear that, but we're going to hear a different version. This is a little bit uh, off the beaten track. This was from a film appearance, and I don't know where this film appearance came from. It was from a short subject, um, probably about a 25-minute film, that was released in 1947. It was kind of a compendium of African-American uh, performances, and Ida Cox did two tunes on this. She did Four Day Creep and Kentucky Man Blues, and we're going to hear Four Day Creep. And if you check out YouTube, you can see her performing that from 1947, when she was probably in her mid-50s at least, if not pushing 60, and she looked quite uh, glamorous at the time. She is accompanied by Jesse Crump, her husband, on piano, and it's just a short performance of her standing, singing by a piano, but you do get a sense of her kind of magnetism on stage with this. And Four Day Creep, I should mention, is not F-O-U-R, but apostrophe F-O-R-E, a contraction of before, before day creep, a kind of a tribute to a wandering man, as it were. So those are our four tunes for this set. One Hour Mama, Death Letter Blues, Low Down Dirty Shame, and Four Day Creep. I've always heard that haste makes ways, so I believe in taking my time. The highest mountain can't be raised It's something you must slowly climb I want to 
slow and easy man He needn't ever take the lead Cause I work on that long time plan And I ain't looking for no speed I'm a one hour mama So no one minute papa Ain't the kind of man for me Set your long clock papa One hour that's proper Then love me like I like to be I don't want no lame excuses About my loving being so good That you couldn't wait no longer Now I hope I'm understood I'm a one-hour mama So no one-minute papa Ain't the kind of man for me I can't stand no greenhorn lover Like a rookie going to war With a great big load of artillery But don't know what it's for He's got to bring me reference with a great long pedigree And must prove he's got endurance or he don't mean that to me I can't stand no crowing rooster what just hits a lick or two Action is the only booster of just what my man can do I don't want no invitation, my requirements ain't no joke Cause I got your indignation for a guy what's lost his stroke I'm a one-hour mama no one minute papa ain't the kind of man for me set your alarm clock papa one hour that's proper then love me like i'd like to be i may want love for one hour then decide to make it two takes an hour before i get started maybe three before i'm through i'm a one hour mama so no one minute papa Was undead, but 
He was slowly dying And to think of him I Just can't help from crying I followed my daddy To the barren ground I followed my daddy To the barren ground I watched the Paul barriers Slowly let him down That was the last time I saw my daddy's face That was the last time I saw my daddy's face Mama loved you, sweet papa Wish I could take your place. It's so low, it's so low, Oh, 
in the uh, second part of her career, I guess you'd have to say. Maybe third or fourth, who knows. So we started out with One Hour Mama and Death Letter Blues. And those were tunes well associated with Ida Cox from her earlier career in the 1920s. She wrote or had a hand in writing both of those, and she was surrounded then by her all-star band, Hot Lips Page, J.C. Higginbottom, and Edmund Hall. Uh, no solos in there, although Higginbottom had a nice little obligato to her vocal, with James P. Johnson on piano, Charlie Christian on rhythm guitar, Artie Bernstein on bass, and Lionel Hampton on drums, October 31st of 1939. Then we went over to Carnegie Hall and heard a low-down, dirty shame. And this was a tune that, um, as I said, Ida Cox, uh, I believe she wrote, and you can really get a sense of what she sounded like in those tents, maybe. Her voice really did carry. I guess she may have had a microphone there, but she had a fairly loud band, some members of the uh, Count Basie band, along with James P. Johnson, Walter Page, Joe Jones, Buddy Tate, Chad Collins, and uh, Dickie Wells there, all, all playing along behind her. So, great blues performance there. And then we ended up with Four Day Creep, the uh, tune that uh, she recorded uh, on film with her husband and accompanist at the time, Jesse Crump on piano, and that was from a film called Woman's a Fool, which interestingly is part of the lyrics to that song. As I said, she wasn't really part of the plot. She just had two two appearances, I guess, in that film that were kind of grafted in, and that was common with African-American films in the 1940s. They were kind of almost vaudeville reviews in and of themselves, but she had a featured enough part that I guess uh, uh, her lyrics were listened to and used as the title of that film, Four Day Creep. So we're going to go back now and hear some of her early recordings from the 1920s. We're going to start out uh, with a tune called the Graveyard Blues, and uh, or Graveyard Dream Blues, actually. This is one of her tunes. She had a penchant for some of these dark death-related tunes, Death Letter Blues and uh, Graveyard Blues, and there were a number of other funeral and, and, and death-type themes to her songs over the years. Um, but this is one of the better ones, I think. This was from uh, Paramount Recordings, as are all the ones on this set. They're all recorded in Chicago. This was from one of her first recording sessions in June of 1923 with Lovey Austin and her Blues Serenaders, Lovey Austin on piano, along with Tommy Ladner on cornet and Jimmy O'Brien on clarinet. And Lovey Austin did the arrangement, certainly, for these. 
So that, as I said, Graveyard Dream Blues. We're going to follow that up with the Weary Way Blues, a tune that we might be more familiar with in recordings that uh, Johnny Dodds and then later on Sidney Bechet did. Uh, Sidney Bechet and Albert Nicholas, uh, two clarinets that we've played on uh, past podcast, and uh, they did this tune, of course, with no lyrics. But the lyrics here are quite interesting. Ida Cox is given credit for them, and she sings some things that we consider to be kind of tried and true old blues lyrics, like I'm Not Rough, the one that uh, Louis Armstrong sang. It had some nice breaks to it, it had an actual structure to the music as well. And uh, this was from the same date as Graveyard Dream Blues, June of 1923. Then we're going to hear a song called Come Right In, which is the prototype for some of the later folk tunes like Walk Right In and Sit Right Down. This is a tune that uh, there's a a press mention of Ida Cox from about 1916, uh, her singing this song. So this goes back to that early period at any rate. It's uh, something she was singing on the stage probably 10 years before she recorded this, which was in uh, probably August of 1923. Again, these Paramount recordings, all the logs are long since gone, so we're guessing at some of the dates on this, but this features her and Lovey Austin on piano, just a duet, and Ida even recognizes Lovey and cheers her on in the midst of the recording. Then we're going to have another Lovey Austin uh, accompaniment, and this is one that she actually wrote. This is a, a, a neat tune um, with uh, some very interesting sentiments in there. It's called, How Can I Miss You When I've Got Dead Aim, a good vaudeville type of tune. This is uh, Lovey Austin along with Jimmy O'Brien on clarinet and Bob Schaffner on cornet. Tommy Ladner left Chicago by this point, which was September of 1925. But a very humorous performance and a tune by Lovey Austin. After that, we're going to hear a tune called the Alfonsia Blues, and that features uh, Ida with her husband, Jesse Crump. They had gotten married in the middle 1920s and became a duo for about 20 years, up through the time of that film that we just uh, heard the soundtrack to. This is from July of 1927, and Alfonsia, I don't know what the reference is to this, but it's a very um, well-balanced and well-recorded blues performance, so good to listen to. Then we're going to finish up with a tune that some jazz bands, especially British jazz bands, picked up on many years later. This is called Treetop Tall, or Treetop Tall Papa, officially. And this is uh, from July of 1928, and it features Ida Cox with Jesse Crump on piano, assisted by a cornet player. It might be either Dave Nelson or Burton T. Wingfield, both of whom were very active on the Chicago scene, and an unknown banjo. And I like this tune because it's a, it's a kind of a, a takeoff on the blues in a way. The melody is, is more compelling than most blues melodies. It's got some interesting chord changes in there, and uh, it really is more song-like than most blues from this period. So those are the tunes we're going to hear. These are all from the 1920s period of Ida Cox's career. Graveyard Dream Blues, The Weary Way Blues, Come Right In, How Can I Miss You When I've Got Dead Aim, Alfonsia Blues, and Treetop Tall Papa.
nobody care but me. See, I'm all alone. I haven't got no home. Lonely as can be. But I'll tell you, Daddy, you want to make me smile. Give me about an hour. Stop and rest a little while. Now, won't you come right in?
So there we have a selection of Ida Cox's recordings from the 1920s. She recorded quite a lot. It fills up the better part of four CDs, the things she recorded from 1923 to 1929. Then, of course, as I mentioned, she did those sides, three different sessions in 1939 and 40. So we started out with Levy Austin and her Blues Serenaders accompanying Ida Cox on the Graveyard Dream Blues, followed by Weary Way Blues, a couple of interesting variations on the blues uh, melodic structure there. Then going on to Come Right In, that tune that uh, Cox had uh, been credited with singing uh, in the 1910s on a, on a review of one of her shows. Then another Lovey Austin performance of a Lovey Austin song sung by Ida Cox called How Can I Miss You When I've Got Dead Aim, a good vaudeville comic number. And we remember that uh, these singers were really uh, all-round entertainers. They were not just blues singers the way someone like Blind Lemon Jefferson was primarily a blues singer. Uh, they did everything. They, they sang, they danced, they acted, they uh, directed shows, they sang a wide range of popular music through the 1910s and 20s. We then heard Alfonsia Blues, which she was pronouncing as Olfonia. Uh, I'm not exactly sure where that title comes from, but a good blues performance with Ida Cox backed by her husband and accompanist Jesse Crump on piano. Then we heard Treetop Tall Papa, as I mentioned, kind of a, an unusual take on the blues. It's a 12-bar form, but very uh, unusually structured melody in that case. And some of the jazz bands, especially in England in the 1950s and 60s, got hold of that tune and recorded it. Sandy Brown's band comes to mind. And so those were our uh, Ida Cox in the 1920s recordings. And as I mentioned, she was a pretty uh, good draw in vaudeville theaters on the TOBA circuit during the 1920s with bands and, and sometimes just a piano player. As the uh, interest in the blues waned and the depression crept on, as I said, she started uh, doing some tent shows and tours with her husband, Jesse Crump, that Raisin Cane show, which uh, did uh, some business in New York before going out on the road. And that was how she... Uh, kept afloat all through the 1930s. And as I mentioned, that biography, autobiography of Clark Terry gives a particularly vivid uh, remembrance of those days and that type of show. Ida Cox, who had been one of the top drawers of the 1920s, was touring in kind of a down-at-the-heels blues show, all traveling in one bus uh, through the South dealing with racism. They had a, a, a peg-leg dancer, a dwarf comedian, a, uh, a pretty girl shake dancer, as uh, Clark Terry called him, called her rather, and Ida Cox, as well as a very good band. So, good cross-section of the black entertainment world of the 1930s. Then after she sang those, uh, or did those recording sessions and concert for John Hammond, she came back to prominence a little bit, and by the early 1940s she was doing, I guess, some more uh, supper club and, and, and high-profile gigs, and as I said, she did that film. Uh, where that was filmed, I have no idea. There was very little information about that, but that was from 1947. Shortly after that, she had a stroke while on stage, I think in Cleveland, and she ended up having to retire for a while. Her marriage to Jesse Crump must have ended about that time, and she returned to Knoxville, where, as I said, I think she was based throughout most of the 20s and 30s, and her daughter lived there. She was a school teacher, school principal, actually, and Ida Cox lived with her for the next 20 years. She died in 1967. And uh, she became a uh, an old-fashioned church lady and lived a quiet existence 
existence except for one brief moment in 1961. She was re-rediscovered uh, by Chris Albertson, who was a jazz producer for Riverside Records. He brought some old blues singers into the recording studios in 1960 or so, Alberta Hunter and Lovey Austin and Victoria Spivey, people like that. And he found that uh, Ida Cox was still alive. And in 1962, he brought her to New York. There was also a fellow in Knoxville, a radio uh, DJ who had interviewed her about the same time. You can see here those interviews and some recordings she did at home on YouTube. But she came and made an album for Riverside Records in 1962 called The Blues for Rampart Street, which was one of her hit songs of the 1920s. And this band that backed her was quite a fine little group, the Coleman Hawkins Quintet, so-called. Coleman Hawkins on tenor sax and Roy Eldridge on trumpet. They were touring at the time with Jazz at the Philharmonic and other um, groups as well. We have Sammy Price on piano, great blues pianist, along with Milt Hinton on bass and Joe Jones on drums. So a very uh, well-traveled, well-seasoned group who all remembered Ida Cox from her salad days, and they all uh, obviously treated her with great respect. She was probably about 70, if not a little older at the time, and uh, her voice was uh, a little creaky, but her... Uh, interpretations were really spot on and she was singing some of these tunes that she sang 40 years before that uh, even better I would have to say. So we're going to hear four tunes from that album. We're going to hear a tune called Fogeyism, which she recorded uh, in the 1920s. This is a, a, a discussion of some of the uh, superstitions in African-American culture, uh, along with the blues. Then we're going to hear a pop tune called Mama Goes Where Papa Goes. And this, uh, again, reminds us of her comedic roots and uh, how she uh, really sold us on, on stage. A very funny performance. Then a straight blues called the Hard Times Blues. And then we're going to finish up with her signature song called Wild Women Don't Get the Blues. And this is a song that, as you can imagine, was celebrated by uh, some feminist singers and uh, folk singers from the 1960s and 70s. Bonnie Raitt, I think, sang this one. Uh, and she does a really exceptional performance. Even her advanced age and the fact that she hadn't sung professionally in 20 or 15 years at that point, she really does a very commendable job. It's a fun story that during or after this recording session, she went out on the town in New York. She hadn't been there in years, and she went to a jazz club. I think it might have been Birdland, and she heard Count Basie's band. And she went backstage, and Basie took one look at her and knew exactly who she was because, again, she was one of the great uh, draws of the 1920s. She was a, a star in black entertainment circles, and Basie wow, knew her all too well. I should also mention that she was, as I said, called the uncrowned queen of the blues, but the other moniker that she had hung on her in the 1930s was the Sepia Mae West. And uh, I think from some of her performances and her innuendo and uh, her swagger, uh, even in the recording studio, you get a, a feeling of what Mae West must have been like on stage as well. So this is Ida Cox with the Coleman Hawkins Quintet done for Riverside Records in 1962. Fogeyism, Mama Goes Where Papa Goes, Hard Times Blues, and Wild Women Don't Get the Blues.
Why do people believe in some old sign? To hear a hoot owl holler, someone is surely dying. Some will break a mirror. Cry bad luck for seven years. Some will break a mirror. Cry bad luck for seven years. And if a black cat crosses them. They'll break right down in
Look here, Henry Lee, said Mrs. Henry Brown. How do you always disappear when the evening sun goes down? You eat my meat, drink my chicken soup. Then I notice you always fly the coop. But you can't pass through that door, no, without your mama anymore. Cause mama goes where papa goes. A papa don't go out tonight. Mama goes because mama knows you can't be trusted out of her sight. Mama's got a feeling that she must be near Just to help her daddy keep his conscience clear So mama goes where papa goes Our mama don't go out tonight Mama goes because mama knows he can't be trusted out of her sight. Mama's got a feeling that she must be near just to help her papa keep his conscience clear. Mama goes where papa goes. Papa don't go out tonight. Maybe you think you're the best in town, but your mama knows just how to turn your damper down. Mama goes where papa goes. A papa don't go out tonight. I mean, papa don't go out tonight. Oh. 
break of day They seem to know my good man's gone away Won't you on my bones I'm a big fat mama got the meat shaking on my bones and every time I shake some skinny gal loses her Everywhere 
making hard votes day and night because wild women don't worry wild women don't have no Cox, in this case with Coleman Hawkins and his quintet, Roy Eldridge on trumpet and Coleman Hawkins taking some very fine solos, Sam Price on piano, uh, Milt Hinton on bass and Joe Jones on drums along with the venerable Ida Cox at that point, probably about 70 years old or a little bit older than that. Uh, still singing pretty well, all things considered, considering how much singing she had done in her life in her earlier career. As I mentioned, she was living with her daughter in Knoxville, Tennessee. She lived until 1967. I guess she had some more ill health after this recording date, and she didn't record again, but uh, very interesting life. And uh, that last tune, Wild Women Don't Get the Blues, uh, that's kind of a misnomer in her uh, case, I guess. Wild Women Don't Have the Blues. She lived so long because by the standards of uh, her her generation and her vocation there, she really wasn't a wild woman. She actually apparently led a pretty, uh, I don't know about chaste, but a pretty reasonable life and a very uh, business-like life as well. So she was very well thought of in the industry. She always had good tours and good people on the tours and, uh, as I said, made quite a, quite a raft of fine recordings. So... Hope you've enjoyed this Ida Cox program for today. Uh, there are going to be some more blues programs coming up in the future. I'm doing some projects on classic blues and sort of getting waist deep in some of this stuff. Uh, and uh, I'll be passing it on to you, some of the finer points. So you've been listening to the Jazz Focus. My name is John Clark. Hope you join us again on a regular basis. Consider being our sponsor. Take a look at some of our ever-increasing backlog of programs of really fine jazz. So thank you very much, and I'll see you on the other side.